Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to Space the Nation. This episode will unfold in traditional chronological order. So keep this channel open for more. No, no, no. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and as a Stanford PhD, I am required by law and rivalry to be suspicious of anyone who teaches at Berkeley. We have some really great episodes coming up. We are doing a cannon fodder episode interrogating H.P. Lovecraft, the movie Starship Troopers. We're also going to look at the original Battlestar Galactica and a bunch of other cool things we are still figuring out. Yes, but also equally important, we are at 100 paying patrons, which means that we will be doing a patrons-only episode with the topic chosen by you, the patrons. If you want to weigh in on the choice, uh, the first step is to head over to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash space the nation, uh, where we'll be updating everyone on the process. If you want in on that and you are not a patron, I highly recommend becoming one. It doesn't really cost that much, but then you will get exclusive content. Oh, we have also launched a Discord channel, which I am not even sure how to describe what a Discord is. If you know what that is, then you might be excited. It's basically kind of chat, as far as I understand. And anyone who is a patron uh, from the all-access patron on up will have access to that. And that is also true for the patron-only episode. It's not just going to be for the $5 and up patrons. It'll be for anyone who's giving us basically any money at all. They will be the recipient of a an episode just for them. But we have this episode to do, Dan. We are going to be talking about 2016's moody and atmospheric first contact movie, Arrival. Dan, why are we talking about this movie? It's my fault, okay? This is entirely my fault. Fine. I take it. All right? I like this movie. No, so... so People are going to be confused why you're so defensive if they haven't heard any other episode. But Yes, if this is the first episode you have heard... You might be thinking that I'm a bit defensive. You would be right. Uh, the reason I am a bit defensive about this is that in multiple episodes prior to this, whenever we've been talking about what's coming on, Anna has always made it clear that this is my choice, that she is not necessarily the biggest fan of this movie. And I was hopeful that perhaps a second watching would change her mind, although I'm not entirely sure that's correct. But the reasons that I want this film or wanted to talk about this film are as follows. First of all, we've talked about a, some other science fiction, obviously, on this show, but we haven't really touched a lot on sci-fi made in the last 20 years. I mean, we did talk about the Snyder Cut, but I don't think that's terribly typical, and I thought this was an interesting recent sci-fi uh, movie worth talking about. It also came out in the fall of 2016, and I remember it being very much of the moment when it came out. It was sort of presaging a couple of things that we'll talk about, I think, when we talk about the recap in terms of the rise of Trump. It is a rare movie that I actually think gets the Academy pretty right. And I confess that I have a bugaboo as an academic. Most movies that feature professors get things horribly, horribly wrong about the Academy. And actually, this one is pretty good. If nothing else, it's a movie that features a white male professor who is not sleeping with a student. Yay! <laughs> Yay the Academy! And a, a good-looking white male good, professor yes. who, who yes, is not exactly. sleeping with a student. Yes. Professors can be good looking on it. Yes. And finally, it's directed by uh, Denise Villeneuve and stars Amy Adams. I stand both of these people and I'm, I will not be surprised we are going to be talking about another, at least one or two other Denise Villeneuve movies at some point in this uh, podcast, but they are both really, really good. I want to get out of the way that I understand why you chose this movie. I wasn't really <laughs> against it. I just find this movie irritating. It, it is less that I... <laughs> hate it. It's almost mm -hmm. worse that I find it as irritating as I do, in part because I also love 
Amy Adams and Villeneuve. Yeah. Is that how you say his name? Villeneuve. I, I think so. Yes. I'm, okay. I'm well, sure, I'm, we're going French, with Villeneuve. French speakers can correct us uh, in the Discord, or uh, you know, at the at the website. I think they're great. I think the movie is is visually stunning. I've also mm-hmm. mentioned before how much I love the soundtrack. It's just, yeah, I just it's irritating to me. There's some sort of fundamental things that we will get into almost right away. So. Let's not dally any longer. Let's talk about the story behind the story, Dan. The story behind the story, uh, which is be uh, relatively abbreviated in this uh, episode, is that uh, this is based on a Ted Chang novella called Story of Your Life. One thing worth noting is Chang uh, actually approves the film, which is a rare quality in terms of writers who then find their work converted into film. And he thinks it's both a good movie and a good adaptation. So that in and of itself uh, speaks well to Villeneuve and the movie. And I will just add sort of in Villeneuve's oeuvre, this movie is interesting (laughs) because his interests tend to be the cycle of family uh, burdens, family dramas, and the cycle of violence. Mm -hmm. And this is very much a movie about cycles, but (laughs) I think it might be one of his only movies where there is no physical altercation between anyone (laughs) unless you count the soldiers who are trying to sabotage the right and even there the answer is no you don't actually like it's hinted at but you don't actually yeah. see any. you just so hear the, the you just hear the gunfire yeah so. yeah no it's a good point dan yeah the plot okay before i get into the plot i do want to issue one cautionary warning which is if you have not seen this film and have any interest in seeing this film stop listening to this podcast now this is a film that relies on a very serious plot twist that if you know in advance changes your perceptions of the film. It can be watched again, obviously, but my point is you want to watch it at least once without knowing anything that is going to happen. Okay? All right, all those of you who haven't seen it, switch it off. Let's start. Act one, the sad and the tense. We begin with a brief prologue in which Louise Banks has a child, sees her grow up into a teenager, get sick, and die. Uh, it is very sad. It is not quite up-level sad, but it's close. And the film starts with a voiceover of Louise telling her daughter about the origin of her story. Louise is also a linguistics professor, and her class is interrupted by news of 12 alien ships arriving on Earth. It would be safe to say that no one on campus reacts well to this news as the school evacuates. Anna, we've talked before in this uh, podcast, and I think we're both big fans of this, of the idea of showing and not telling. And once again, I I think we're maybe like seven or eight minutes into the film, and I admire the economy with which this movie ratchets up the tension. I'm not surprised, given that Villeneuve also made Sicario, which might be the tensest movie I've ever watched in my life. But just, again, not a lot of effort, and you are already freaked out. I agree. Like I said, formally... I think this is a good movie in a lot of ways. It's just those little details that get to me. One little detail, which doesn't really get to me, but I have to point out, is that the campus is deserted the next day when she goes to teach her class. And uh, clearly she's not teaching at University of Chicago because I know that I would have showed up anyway, even if there was an alien invasion, (laughs) because that's the kind of nerd that I am. And I just have to briefly say that I, I did go to University of Chicago and one time there was a winter storm and the class showed up and the professor didn't for that class. And I remember <laughs> being like, well, yeah, well, you taught at Yale. So sure. You know what? That's like, actually, wait. Those pussies. So as, 
As a former U of C prof, I am outraged on behalf of U of C profs because, let's face it, if you teach at the University of Chicago, most people who taught there lived within a 10-block radius of the campus. So it was always cute if there was a winter storm, but it didn't matter. You could walk to school. It wasn't like it was that hard. So I I, I remember- In this professor's defense, I do remember he lived in one of the cooler parts of town, not in- Uh, Okay. All right. But I also remember talking to him and him being like, I heard you guys- came <laughs> last week. I, but again, when, we ta- when I talk about getting the Academy right, what I thought was accurate was that she did show oh, up. Yes. She well, see, that's that what much- I'm saying. I am saying, yeah, like, yeah. you know, I think other students would show up. I don't think she'd be ah, alone in her dedication to, to her craft. Anyway, that is actually, like I said, not one of the things that bothers me. <laughs> so let's just move on. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Louise shows up. There's no one in her class, so she goes to her office to work, as academics do. The military arrives and enlists Louise and a theoretical physicist named Ian, played by Jeremy Renner. Uh, Louise is obviously played by Amy Adams, to help decipher the alien language. The countries hosting the 12 alien ships are trying to pool information about what they're learning from the aliens, but the fact is there ain't much. And it would be safe to say that the militaries in each of these countries are very suspicious about what the fuck is going on. Interacting with the aliens, who are called heptopods, because I believe they have seven legs, uh, requires them to enter the alien ship in hazmat suits to guard against, you know, potential infection something or whatever. And even doing that requires a change in perspective. Gravity in the ship is oriented in a different direction uh, from that on Earth. On it, it's not all that subtle of a symbol, but the point about the need for a different perspective, I thought, serves as a good harbinger for the curveballs to come. Yes? Again, movie is visually <laughs> stunning and also handles its themes adroitly, let's say, not too subtly. But adroitly, um, another thing that mm-hmm. comes up over and over again in the movie are circles and curves. Yeah. Louise, in the opening montage, the hospital that she is visiting her daughter in appears to be a circle, a circular oh, okay. hallway. Her classroom is an arc. So there are circles and broken circles. And you you hopefully follow Dan and Vice, and so I won't <laughs> it won't be a spoiler for me to say, obviously, that is, you know, a theme of the movie is time is circular. Yeah. This is also where my problems with the movie begin, where the irritation, you know, starts and my annoyance forms like a pearl around it. (laughs) And it begins with the colonel coming to Louise's office. First of all, he says, you did great with that Farsi. And you wouldn't really have to search the globe to find someone who speaks Farsi. I'm sorry. Like... It's not that big a deal. Like, it would be more interesting if he was like, you know, it was like some dialect that people were unfamiliar with and they had to really work on it. But no. Anyway, fine. That's actually kind of small. The thing that really, really gets to me is he says to her, you're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translation. That's not how (laughs) linguistics works. That's not how translation works. Linguists are not translators. That's actually the core problem here is that mm-hmm. that's not what linguists do. I mean, linguists are helpful in translating things, but it's not like they figure out languages. You know, they figure mm-hmm. out the structure of languages. They sometimes figure out how languages are acquired. Mm-hmm. It would be helpful to have a linguist do this job. Right. But to describe her as a translator, frankly, is kind of insulting. Um, and I think a linguist <laughs> would be insulted by it. And also just the idea that as far as translation goes, 
there are different kinds of translation. There are different language families. It's not like one person in the world would be like, oh, you're the translator. She's the best right. at translating. It'd like be like, you're science. That's how it'd be. Like, it'd be like, you know, you're the top. <laughs> you're good at science. science. You're the top of science. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a totally fair point. And I live this way where I will, I will say, I will acknowledge this point. When I watched it this time, I didn't quite... I saw the flaws a little more than I think the first time I saw it. And one of them is, and, and this this occurred to me the first time I watched it, is that part of the problem is that really the characters outside of, of Louise and to a lesser extent Ian aren't terribly interesting or, and like are to some extent with the military side almost cartoonish, which is a bit of a problem. The CIA guy is like, that's really like unfair to that actor who's actually pretty good. Michael Stolberg, who is a fantastic yeah. actor. And I really, I actually had a better impression of him this time around, interestingly enough, but we'll go on about this. The other thing is this whole, like, it's somewhat important to the plot that mm-hmm. she gives this w- weird pop quiz for the colonel to, to ask the other linguists, <laughs> you know, to translate the Sanskrit word for war. And I've never quite understood why this is such a challenge I actually read around online to see what I was missing. And one idea, and it turns out this is a source of confusion for many people. Like, (laughs) why does that matter? And why does it make the colonel decide not to choose that guy? In fact, so much not to choose that guy that he gets in a helicopter and arrives at the middle of the night to Amy Adams' house to ask her for her answer. On the water, no less, by the way. What What if she had given him whatever the wrong answer is? Why didn't he call ahead? Like, why didn't he be like, you know that quiz you asked me to give that guy? Like, what's your well, wait a minute, answer but, to but, it? Hold on to, be, hold on, to be fair, Louise is the one who tells the colonel, ask the guy at Berkeley what right, this right, means. Right, so, right, 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 right. Yeah, so, yeah. so, but the colonel doesn't know what the meaning of the quiz is. He goes and asks the but, guy, and the guy says it means, you know, whatever. This is the yeah. Sanskrit word for war. If you, well, I would bet okay, it, you're, okay, you're the colonel. You're yes. the colonel, Okay, right? All right. Hi, I Louise, say, all right, you? I'm too I'm too dedicated to my craft to do it in this haphazard way that you have asked me to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Without actually going to the aliens. That's her, mm-hmm. where yeah. she makes her stand. Right, right. Oh, you're going to go see the guy at Berkeley? Ask him what the Sanskrit word for war is. I'm going to Google right now what the Sanskrit word for war yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, she meant by mean that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And then okay. he's so confident that her answer is going to be better. Like, again, he, like, flies in the middle of the night, helicopter and lands on her land, which makes for a great scene, but still. Okay. Also, I, I looked up, when I looked up the scene, there is some discussion about whether or not that word is really war or it might be battle. I'm just saying. Mm, okay. Fair Please. enough. Oh, wait, wait, right. wait, wait. I have another thing. I have another thing. Another thing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, because it's important because this sets up like why the whole thing starts to annoy me. They set up the sort of artificial distinction between Louise as kind of a soft science person, like touchy feely, emotional, right, which is bullshit. And yes, yes. Ian as the hard scientist. By the way, why is a theoretical physicist trying to do translation? I don't know. What is he bringing? You would want a mathematician. You yes. would want someone who is a mathematician. Theoretical physicist. I am not so sure. Like what he, in fact, does not do very much. <laughs> No, he does one important thing, and that's it. So yeah. yes, I, oh, I. You mean when he walks across the? No, I mean the, <laughs> I guess, when he looks at the space. But yeah, it's bullshit that she's like the sensitive, you know, emotionally intelligent one, and he's like the hard science guy. In part because linguistics has a hard science side. So here is my answer to this: is is that it is entirely believable that a theoretical physicist would think that linguistics is a soft social science, not realizing. 
I've met it. I, you know, theoretical physicists are sufficiently arrogant. That okay, it would never occur. He to them. is a, a very good portrait of a theoretical physicist. Yes, exactly. You are so correct. I'm saying I am just not sure what, why you would, why the two people you'd bring. Right, but what I'm saying is, is that like you know, and like I, th- there's a there's a scene a little bit later where, which I did like again. This was realistically as an academic thing where where Ian tells Louise, you realize you approach linguistics like a mathematician or uh, you know yeah. a physicist, well, and it is a, from his perspective trying to be a compliment and is a ridiculously pedantic thing to say. I in- liked Amy Adams' reaction to this, which is she knew it was simultaneously like a compliment, but like, but also thought you were an idiot, yeah. <laughs> A huge part of linguistics is mathematical. Like that's yes. how a lot of languages, uh, you know, and codes get broken is right. actually through yeah. probabilistic analysis and not just like cat, cow, walk, Fair human, enough. Louise, you know, whatever. Anyway, anyway, All so right. this sets up why I get so annoyed with the movie. And <laughs> we'll move on. We move on to Act Two: Eggheads versus Jarheads: Dawn of Understanding. Louise succeeds in getting the heptapods to communicate in their written language, which happens to be different from their spoken language. That success accelerates once she removes her hazmat suit in the chamber with the aliens and is thereby able to communicate somewhat better. They learn that the heptapods have no sense of time in their written language. We also learn that Louise's memories of being with her daughter are getting stronger and starting to overwhelm her. Ian dubs the two heptapods they interact with, uh, Abbott and Costello, which is a lovely reference. The Chinese and the Russians uh, are getting antsy in terms of their interactions with the heptapods, and Louise forces the issue and asks the heptapods why they've come, uh, basically exceeding to what the military wants them to ask. They answer, offer weapon, which freaks everyone out. There is a big ed- egghead versus jarhead debate uh, about what this means. The Chinese and the Russians get a similar message from their ships, which causes them to shut down communications. The U.S. follows suits. None of the 12 sites are talking to each other. Anna, this part seemed a bit too paranoid the first time I watched it, but now I'm not so sure. Dan, I have a question for you. Yes? How would these aliens have learned the word weapon? <laughs> At least in the Louise and Ian part of the world? Would they, was that one of the like things? Because, you know, there's actually it's sort of made a big deal about the colonel mm. wants to limit the number of vocabulary words. She's teaching the Which aliens. I grant you makes no sense whatsoever. Not that, really. Yeah, but I'm just yeah. guessing weapon. Like, yeah. How would have that gotten on there? Like, it, it, and would it come up in conversation? Like, I just have trouble believing that that would be one of the words they would learn because mm-hmm. it does seem very much open to confusion. Like, if mm-hmm. you introduce that very early on into a language learning session. The other thing is these aliens who apparently know the future just land on Earth with no plan to, like, <laughs> communicate. They're just going to be like... Here's some pretty circles, guys, and here's our whale sounds. Okay, we, you know what? we we can do faster than light travel, mm-hmm. but we're not going to bring our own whiteboard. Like we're not going to. Well, I guess they do have a whiteboard, but like no plan. That I did. That I had less of a problem with because I assumed that their belief was that if they made it too easy for the Earthlings, they would not realize they would have to cooperate. In other words, they set this up. Oh yeah, you're you're so you're on the like so they have to cooperate in order to to make it happen, yeah. and this is the problem. Yeah. Okay, I'm willing to like. I'm willing to grant that. But, you I'm grant you it's is... not the great. There, you would think there might be better ways of doing it, but that is actually consistent with the plot. Is all I'm saying. Yes, but also, why does it have <laughs> to take so long to get them to cooperate? Like that's sort of like a strange artificial thing. Like, mm-hmm. 
you would what if they've just all landed in separate places and you made it a, a little hard for them to figure out what's going on but you didn't bring them to the brink of war like that you know seems counter in some ways, this also gets to the question of the aliens' conception of time, which is maybe one of the reasons they did this was because they knew how it was going to play out already. Although this gets into paradoxical questions, right? That I don't which even this movie does into. not engage in. That's actually another no. one of my. It's it's not really a criticism because I don't think. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with. That, I actually, actually. don't I think was... every time travel movie has to engage with the paradox, right. but. Mm-hmm. So the aliens knew that the Earthlings have to come to the brink of war in order to appreciate cooperation, perhaps. Right. Yes. All right. Okay. Uh, We go to Act 3, everything go boom. Louise and Ian decide to go back into the heptapod ship to try to clarify what they mean by weapon. They do not realize, however, that a group of soldiers who have been freaked out by talk radio, cable news, and their scared family members have decided that they will blow up their ship. Ian and Louise ask the heptapod what's the what as we see a uh, timer for the bomb going down. They respond with a whole lot of ink circles that they obviously record. And then one of the aliens starts banging on the divider between uh, the aliens and the uh, the humans. They don't know what's going on. The bomb is counting down. And finally, one of the heptapods, call sign Abbott, uses the force or something to push out Ian and Louise before the explosion, thereby saving their lives uh, at the expense of Abbott. China's General Shang escalates, saying the aliens have 24 hours to leave or he will open fire on that alien ship. The U.S. recognizes they need to be prepared to retaliate as well. All of the alien craft move into a hover mode about a half mile above the Earth. Ian figures out that the message that they received, which had all of the ink blocks, was approximately 11 twelfths empty space and 1 twelfth message. He deduces that the other sites are receiving other parts of the message and that only if everyone cooperates will it be possible to puzzle it out. Louise and Ian urge talking to the other sites again and offer to trade data, but the other co- countries aren't cooperating. Anna, now seems like a good time for you to <laughs> vent about what you don't like about this film. And this is how listeners can know that we do script some sections <laughs> of our podcast. <laughs> because, Dan, I, I think we can agree I have been venting. <laughs> I feel kind of bad because I do think that my criticisms are kind of nitpicky to the larger fairly, you know, beautiful themes and literally beautiful movie. And this is maybe just something that'll come up occasionally on this podcast, which is it is something I think that I share with other science fiction fans when there are some areas, you know, in the weight of disbelief that when just one thing is off in the balance, Mm -hmm. like it becomes difficult to lift that entire, you know, weight, like... Mm -hmm those tiny flaws that just niggle at you you know most like a loose thread that you start pulling out of a piece of clothing and more threads start to appear okay and we move to act four uh the end of intellectual interstellar (laughs) which is to say that louise has a vision uh while everyone's debating of a pod from the ship coming to get her uh she goes outside and hey guess what a pod has come from the ship to get her she gets into the pod the pod goes back up to the alien ship she communicates with costello who explains that abbott is dying but more importantly the reason the aliens have arrived to help humanity is because they know that humanity will need to help them in approximately 3000 years uh the technology that they have been trying to give louise and other 
Earthlings is their language, which apparently allows those who speak it to see the future, the confirmation of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. It is at this point that Louise, and I suspect most viewers, although Anna, I want to ask you this, realize that the flashbacks of Louise with her daughter are actually flash-forwards. The more she understands Heptapod, the better she can see the future. So, Anna, I, for me, I think part of the reason that I love this film is that it was a legitimately shocking twist to realize that the interactions that we think of her at the beginning of the movie, and I thought of her as a sort of grieving mother who mm-hmm. was trying to get over the loss of her child. And it is only at this moment, I think, when I first watched it, that I realized, oh, my God, this hasn't happened yet. This is about what is going to happen in the future. I was curious, is, like, was it's this roughly twist. when you figured it out? Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. good twist. Just keep saying, like, there, there are many things to like about this movie. Amy Adams is one of them, for sure. Mm-hmm. And the twist does work. Again, if you, for some reason, I can let go of the paradox, the time time travel paradox for some reason. And it it is, it has that little click of falling into place where you're like, ah, yes, I see. Yes. Which is sort of like what it feels like to understand a language too. Right, exactly. Which is fitting given what's what's happening. And I will also say that like watching, having to watch it again, one of the things I like, which is sort of subtle, is the way that... Louise's flash forwards or what have you get stronger the more she figures out the heptapod language, which is entirely consistent. So Louise returns to base camp where the order has been given to evacuate. Uh, She flash forwards to when she has published a book on the heptapod language. Again, talking about getting the Academy right. I love this scene because it's a box with books in it. Like I have done that a couple of times and like, yes, that's she absolutely nailed that. So good. Um, nailed the box of books. Nailed okay. the box of thanks, books. Thanks, Dan. It's a big freaking deal when you get your box of your own books. Okay. It really is. You've written a book. You know this. Correctly okay. presents the box of books. Okay. Please. Anyway, the point is that uh, she realizes that in the future she has published a book on the heptapod language and now can read the language, which permits her ability to view time differently. She flash forwards again to 18 months in the future at a celebration where General Shang says that she's responsible for saving everyone because she called him and changed his mind by telling him his wife's dying words. He then clearly gives him her his phone number and whispers exactly what she said to him 18 months ago. Then back in in the current moment where the, most of the film takes place, Louise grabs a sat phone and says those exact same words to Shang, thereby completing the loop and diffusing the crisis. The movie ends as it began with Louise and her daughter, Hannah. Uh, it turns out that Ian is the father, and she knows how this story will end and proceeds with it anyway. Anna, this ending kind of reminded me, that, you know, there's not a lot of films that have the similar sort of vibe, but the, the ending this reminded me of was The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which also has a feel of hopeful fatalism or fatalistic hope. I'm not entirely sure how to describe it, uh, which I confess is my weak spot. What's <laughs> So I think that the, the message that I take from this film that hits me is mm-hmm. the idea that if we choose to live life fully, we will experience pain. Mm-hmm. That that is unavoidable. It's not just a risk. It's it's there. It's inherent. Yes. It's inherent. Using the birth of a child who will die to make this point is sort of problematic for me. Because Dan, as a father, <laughs> I mean, it, it, we get a little, this is a little serious. I guess it's very serious. If someone told you that you could have a child, that that child would 
in 13, 14 years, die a painful and emotionally devastating death, would you have that child? So this is so I have two answers to this which are contingent to the film. The first is is that I, the, one of the impressions I have is that Louise, I think, also feels committed to doing this, not just because of her child, Hannah, but because in some ways, you know, she literally helped avert the end of the earth. And part of the reason she did that was because she knew what the future was going to hold. And so if she had deviated from that, would it have potentially risked what had happened? Well, that, there, there you in the get past? into the paradox. Issue. Right, there, there's the paradox. But I think one of the things I think I liked about the film in this respect was that while obviously you do know that the child is going to die, that Hannah is going to die, I think at like 16 or something. But what it also shows is the joy that, that they both have, that Hannah and Louise have, from Hannah's existence until that point. And that is not insignificant. And so, let me put it this way. I don't know if I could do that, but I was awed at the idea that Louise would. And there is something that that I find incredibly beautiful about the willingness and the desire to do that. And I think, I, I guess the other thing I would say is that literally if I was put in that situation which meant that I had memories of the daughter that I was going to have. Right. I don't think it, I think it would be unbearable for me to deviate from it. I don't think I could I could part with those, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. And, and, and you know, we are talking about making a choice, not in a future where you can see the future. But to me, there is something it's the it's the pain of a death from cancer and the mm. emotional incomprehensibility of it to put a child through that um, seems selfish to me. Like, I, so is the joy that the ch- it's, it's a question of is the joy that the child experiences mm-hmm. was that outweigh the painfulness of that death? As you said before, though. There is an inherent pain to life. Now, I grant you that a, a 16-year-old dying of cancer is experiencing a hell of a lot more pain than most ordinary citizens. And, and I, I mean, I don't want to belabor this too much, but it, yeah. it is also, I mean, if you knew that your mom had you, knowing that you would go through this, that would be a fucking mind fuck. Watching it the second time, the one part of the movie that seemed off to me is when you, they flash forward and there's this conversation between Louise and her daughter where she explains basically that the reason that Louise and Ian divorced, because we know that Ian is the father, uh, is because she finally did tell Ian what she knows about right. the future. And Ian couldn't stand that. And I, I, the, the most painful line in this movie, actually, is when Hannah says, you know, daddy doesn't look at me the same way anymore. Right. Which, Which means, by the way, that Louise yeah. got pregnant and had right. Hannah without talking to her husband about this knowledge that she has. And that, I grant you, is an ethical quandary at best and is in some ways slightly monstrous. Although I would also argue that what Ian does is also somewhat monstrous. I mean, I grant you that it, 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 he can I, I see him being angry at Louise. But, you know, to take that anger out. And how out could you also? Oh, he looks at her different. But how yeah. as a human. Right. 
if you have been looking at your daughter one way, imagining her getting her PhD and following in your footsteps, imagining the <laughs> grandchildren you'll have, and you know, all right. of that stuff, and then at whatever age being told, no, none of that's going to happen. It, mm-hmm. How could you, as a human being, not – how could you control the way you looked at your kid? I mean, it would change. It might yeah. – it might be with sadness and even more love. What I'm puzzled by, and I mean, this just goes unexplained, and maybe it's in the novella or what have you. You know, if I was in Louise's shoes and I was burdened with the knowledge that she had, I don't think I would have ever told Ian. That would have been the more ethically clean yeah, thing I, I to actually, do. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I mean, I think it would be because it would cause less emotional pain. Right, exactly. In other words, you are, yes. So in other words, you it's, have it's to lying to him for his own good, but in this case, okay, fine. You know. No, but in this case, I actually think it's it's appropriate. I mean, yeah. ma- telling him maybe in advance would also be the right thing to do. But, but if you're going to go through with having the child, then you're committed. You can't tell him what the future is going to be at this point. And I will say this, the one thing the film doesn't wrestle with terribly much is this idea of knowing the future. Mm-hmm. Um, That's the paradox that it just doesn't engage with. Right. It doesn't engage with that at all. And and there is a multiple science fiction movies have been made on this premise of once you know the future, that's a mm-hmm. bit of a problem. And so that was the other thing I I did like the actor's name. I think it's C. Ma who plays General Shang. He mm-hmm. only really has that one scene. But it's very clear that he knows he has to tell Louise these things. Otherwise, the future can't happen. And I just like the way he performed that scene, I have to say, because it was it was simultaneously he was sort of aware of what was going on, but he wasn't completely aware, but he knew he had a mission. And then there's the other this is and then I'll get off of the heavy stuff, yeah. <laughs> which is that presumably other people in the world now speak the heptapod language. This OK, this does start to weird me out a little bit i grant you because like if everyone like she's written a book everyone can know heptapod it's a textbook yeah everyone (laughs) actually sees the future now i assume based on how the heptapods are doing although actually this also gives rise to the question what problem did the heptapods need solving three thousand years from now that also goes unexplained and yeah i mean this is sort of again so it sort of starts to fall apart in the details which is one reason why i think i might like the novella you know, mm-hmm. a novella version of this would sketch out the emotional themes right. and just you get to not engage with some of the stuff that bothers me. I will say this. The two things about this film that really stuck with me this time around, because and it was the things that stuck with me the first time I watched it, was first the recognition of what Louise is willing to do. As I said, there is something I just found I was awestruck by that. And I like, you know, it, it's it, it's terribly sad. And God damn, that music at the closing is just like kills you. I will say as many times as possible, the yeah. soundtrack for this movie is amazing. Yes, I think it's Johan Johansson. And uh, yes. he who worked. On, and also it, it, it shows his skill because I think he also worked on Sicario. And Blade with, Runner. Uh, and Blade Runner. And those are very different soundtracks. <laughs> so it's it's interesting that way. And then the other thing that I think, unfortunately, has become more and more present is the it's just a small subplot. But the idea that like talk radio freaks out and that leads to a renegade action by the military. Like I remember at the time thinking, well, that's pretty a little cartoonish. And now, no, it doesn't feel that cartoonish at all, frankly. I also had a little bit of like, oh, yeah, I guess they got that right. (laughs) Which, you know what, Dan, this brings us to something. Um, Yes. Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this film? Anna, there's a whole lot of IR in this film. Uh, It is safe to say. But I will focus on three things. 
The first, which we've talked about before, is just basically this this sort of logic of uh, the security dilemma, which is if you try to take actions to defend yourself, you might wind up being perceived as a threat by others. And we certainly see this throughout. You know, the Chinese and the Russians react to the notion of offer weapon by really legitimately fearing that what the the aliens are doing is trying to... uh, make humans fight amongst each other. And then what I did like, and this is the part where I will defend the the CIA character in the army, is the recognition that if the Russians and the Chinese do this, then Americans have to be prepared to also fight aliens, even if they don't want to, because it would be understandable to expect the aliens to retaliate. And that is entirely consistent with how this should work. The second sort of IR theme is this, which is central to the film, is the social construction of narratives. And indeed, this is sort of happens throughout all the conversations between the the eggheads and the jarheads, which is this fundamental conflict of what is it that the aliens want? And every time the aliens say something or signal something, the military sees it through a military lens, which is, by the way, is understandable. That's their job. Um, whereas, you know, Louise and Ian say, no, 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 there's multiple ways to interpret this. If we construct the narrative this way, it looks very, very different. And so that's why the, the conversation about things like non-zero-sum games comes on and, and so on and so forth. And I guess the final theme I would say is that uh, that it touches on is this notion of time in international relations theory. And as it turns out, within the last 10 years or so in international relations theory, there was something called the temporal turn. In other words, you have a lot of international relations scholars, including myself, who have published on the role that time plays um, in the way that, that states interact in terms of whether they have long time horizons or short time horizons or how they construct time or think about it that way. And in some ways, that, again, is essential to this film because this film is all about the ways in which different actors view time and how it causes them to behave. Thank you, Dan. (laughs) It is now time to talk about themes and quotes. Dan, please, you go first. Uh, again, it's sort of of a piece with the uh, the previous discussion, but I I think the, the strongest theme I found is the strengths and limits of communication. Trust me, you can understand communication and still end up single. Now, 18 months ago, you did something remarkable. Something not even my superior has done. What's that? You changed my mind. One thing I did like about this film, and I, I, I grant you, the second time I saw this film, it was less subtle than the first time I saw it. So, you know, this I assume this comes from talking about all this stuff with you a lot. But one thing I did like was the acknowledgement in the film that communication is complicated and that even if you master it, your life is not perfect. And, and indeed, there, this goes back to Amy Adams' performance, which, you know, once you learn the plot twist, you, I think, have an even greater respect for because she sort of has to give hints of being sad in the beginning where you infer why she's sad and that's not necessarily the reason but i would say this is a fundamentally sad character and i particularly like that conversation with ian about just because you know how to communicate doesn't mean that you won't be single and and that struck me as a little more resonant this time anna yes dan is there capitalism in this movie ah dan there's not (laughs) capitalism in this movie except of course that it made a lot of money now (laughs) this is why i have no quotes I apologize, but literally, like I was trying to trying to because it is a challenge now that I give I give myself. I uh, used to just sort of it happened kind of naturally, but now this podcast has made me even more aware of class <laughs> consciousness. <laughs> and I tried to do something with the looting. I don't know, but I, I couldn't really get anything. And and then 
I guess there's a part of me that just felt like this is not a subtle movie, you know? Like, you don't have to draw themes out of this movie. It No, it, no, you're not working that hard to figure out yeah. what the movie's about. And yeah. again, that's almost... And it just reminded me again, like, I think this movie could have been even more economical, basically. Hmm. And it, it, I, it, I almost wish it was like a short film. I, I can sort of envision it as a very beautiful short film. But then, like you said, Amy Adams' performance is is worth the price of, of streaming on its own. It, I will say this. It is striking because, like, I was talking about this with some friends uh, a couple days ago. And, and when we Amy Adams came up, and their strongest memories of Amy Adams' performances are the opposite of this movie. Like, you know, you think of her in the Muppet movie, you know, the the, the Muppets. Or what is the Disney, the, the one she, where she plays the Disney princess? She's she's in a movie where it starts as a cartoon and then she becomes an actual real life person. I can't remember, oh, but right. it's like, but it's like you know, it's just bubbly and effervescent. Well, she's a comic. She's known as a comic actress for for to a certain degree. For a lot, yeah, to a certain extent. But like, this yeah. is not a comedic performance. It's a really good performance. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's it's very very good. I think uh, Jeremy Renner actually. He does a good job, too. And I think he's just an amusing character as a person. Um, (laughs) And I enjoy him kind of getting to be a little goofy, uh, nerdy, and also somewhat self-consciously sexist. (laughs) (laughs) He does a little bit of mansplaining in the film. That's a fair point. He does some. Um, But I like to think that they, when they, you know, in their courtship, perhaps she... Got, got him out of that habit no one of the things i get i like is that like yeah he does the mansplaining she's fully aware that he's mansplaining and is mildly mm-hmm. irritated about it but like well as women often above. have to do dan by the way I just fucking you, put up with it <laughs> anna i'm not even gonna fight on this i you know anna i'm not sure you're aware about the ways in which men mansplain. okay i would like to talk to you now for about another 10 minutes about that sorry um, uh I want to say before we do our, before we fly into the debris field that yes. I wasn't turned around on this film, but it is powerful. And it's one yeah. of those things, like, I think sometimes there must be cheat codes in the human psyche to get people to cry, um, <laughs> like, like certain sounds or something or certain, like, gestures, because I did cry the first time I saw this movie and I cried this time. Oh. I think that theme of life will have pain, but... And that's okay. Yes. It's the second part that's important. Yeah. Is really important and just never, you know, fails to kind of slay me. I mean, because we choose to go. (laughs) So capitalism um, insulates (laughs) us. (laughs) I knew you'd find a way to do it. (laughs) Capitalism is presaged on um, discomfort and our, our desire to escape discomfort and buying things to alleviate that discomfort. One of the ways <laughs> that we throw off the yoke of capitalism <laughs> is to choose to experience life fully and the pain that comes with life. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> that was beautiful, Anna. I love how you managed to get capitalism into this. That was lovely. Thank you. Okay, sorry. Uh, on my materialistic side, uh, as we fly into the debris field, um, one of the pieces of debris we will hit is Louise's house, which is gorgeous. Oh, <laughs> God, I love that house. 
And I also just, I'm going to just one more time, like I actually listen to this soundtrack. I feel like I'm maybe, yeah, I'm going on a bit. I, I listen to the soundtrack on a regular basis. It's, um. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful, it, yes, I agree. So I guess my things in the debris field, Anna, I just want you to know that like I'm beginning to notice the gender stuff from doing this. So like there's a scene, it's the one where, where Weber, who's a Forrest Whitaker's character, tries to explain to Louise, look, I, you got to tell me what we're doing because I have to explain this to powerful men. And I was like, what do you mean just powerful men? There aren't any powerful women in this movie, <laughs> right. in, this, in this world? Right. Fuck you. What the, what the hell? That was like yeah. ridiculous. Like you, I did love the final theme and the opening theme uh, are, are lovely. And it's not a coincidence that they are palindromes. The movie is invested in the idea of palindromes. Unsurprisingly, a palindrome is a word that or if you starts and, and ends the same way. So if you reverse it, it's the exact same thing. Like um, Hannah and like Anna. Exactly. Yes. Ah, ooh, ooh, good. Mm-mm. In that sense, again, I admire the craftsmanship. And that about wraps it up. I actually will thank you, Dan, for putting this on the agenda because it taught me something about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I'm sort of serious. Like, I think it, it was interesting for me to think about what was I reacting to. Um, and I bet we'll talk more about this idea that in genre, it's really important to be able to lift the weight of disbelief and, and what prevents mm-hmm. us from doing that. And and it's know, particularly important for science fiction, obviously. Yes. So I agree. Yeah. To get back to the, the podcast itself, we are now at 103 patrons, people paying us money to make this podcast, um, which Yay! still all the money goes to Karen. Karen, thank mm-hmm. you so much. Thank you for working like at scale, basically. If you are one of those paying patrons or want to become one, go to patreon.com slash space the nation. A $3 patron gets not a lot, but you (laughs) will be able to listen to the patron only episode at $5 a month. uh, You get episodes early at, I believe, $35 a month where you have our eternal, you know, gratitude and personal calls. And there's also an AMA, I think that we'll say huzzah or things like that. Right. Um, we will have an AMA coming up uh, first weekend in May. Mm-hmm. And I think that's about it. So, I don't know. Can't think of anything else. Dan? Keep this channel open for more. <laughs> <laughs>